Um, earlier in my life, um, I used to work for um, a firm that had a, a grading system where um, every member of staff was assigned a grade. Um, people like myself, the lowly uh, graduates, we were assigned E-grades when you joined. And the idea was you could work your way up. If you were lucky, you could be a, maybe a D-grade um, assistant manager, or perhaps a, a C-grade manager, or a B-grade senior manager. Or if you were really lucky, you could become part of the A-team if you were one of the chosen ones, the A-grade directors. Why did they have a grading system? Well, a grading system, it was a clear way of distinguishing people's authority and people's value to the firm. The higher your grade, the higher your authority, the higher your valued. And no one cared too much about the lowly graduate, but they paid a lot of attention to the directors. Like many firms, your authority role defined your value. Um, something similar happened to me at school with um, school status in secondary school. I don't know if you had this experience. You started as a year seven, you're kind of littler than everyone else, you're younger than everyone else, so you kind of keep your head down. But as you go through the years, you grow in confidence, year eight, year nine, year ten in our school, you lost your junior maroon jumper, and you're given a blue seniors jumper, and suddenly all the younger kids, they're looking up at you. You've got that status. And then by year 11, you're thinking of taking the back seats on the school bus. You're one of the cool kids now. You're daring. The world's hardwired us to think um, that those who are in positions of authority are to be more highly valued. But that's not how God sees people. For God, your role does not define your value. It's God that defines your value. We're dealing tonight um, with an idea that is radically counter-cultural to modern ears, as it was in Paul's day, as it happens for different reasons. And to prepare us to hear those words well, I'd just like to begin by taking us back one verse, um, to verse 17. So it would help if, help if you have that passage open on page 984, um, to go back to verse 17, which reminds us that Jesus is the sole Lord of everything. Whatever you do, in word or deed, to everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, Colossians, up to this point, it's been continually pointing us back to the supremacy of Jesus. The Jesus who made the world, who holds it all together, who is now seated on a throne in heaven. We keep getting pointed back to Jesus, the one who triumphed, the one who is the head the one who is above and will one day come back and be seen by everyone in all his glory. Colossians has been big, building up this big picture of Jesus for us. And Paul has been trying to persuade us that we have everything in this Jesus, this big picture of Jesus. And now he's beginning to show us that if we follow this Lord of all and we have a personal relationship with him, it's inevitably going to flow through into a tangible life lived for him, a life changed by his lordship over all things. Um, sometimes um, I wonder whether we think aspects of our lives are just too ordinary and too mundane for Jesus to care about. For example, does knowing Jesus have any impact on how I conduct myself at the breakfast table tomorrow morning? Or at 9.30 when I walk into my office, or 
when I sit in a classroom? Does knowing Jesus change how I treat my spouse and my children and my boss and my teacher? And if so, how? Hear the words of verse 17 again with a slightly different emphasis. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, Knowing Jesus is not an exercise in vague spirituality. Knowing Jesus is practical. It's transformative. Knowing him is going to change what I say and what I do on a Monday morning, wherever I find myself. It's amazing how one letter in the Bible, it can move from reflecting on how the whole universe runs and then drive down into the implications for how I conduct myself at the breakfast table tomorrow morning. A right right view of Jesus' lordship, it connects those two ideas. It connects the way the whole universe runs, the way he runs the whole universe, and the way he runs the ordinary day-to-day happenings of my life. All things are done, the big and the small, for the glory of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let's um, come back to the verses we had read, uh, verses 318 to 41, page 984. Notice, like verse 17, the basis for everything that is about to follow is Jesus' lordship. How many times, if you look down at those verses, how many times can you see the Lord mentioned in those verses? Verse 18. The wife is to submit, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20. Children are to obey, for this pleases the Lord. Servants are to fear the Lord. They're to work as for the Lord. The Lord is the source of the servant's inheritance. They're serving the Lord Christ. Um, And then in 4.1, that word translated masters, it's there for making a point to household masters, but you could equally translate it as Lord. It's the same word. It could read, Lords, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven. Um, All these relational dynamics the household, they're undertaken in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's his creation, his pattern, his glory. Um, Let's try to remember that with humble hearts as we hear something that's radically countercultural and truly beautiful as a set of teachings. And I apologize in advance, we're not going to make it to the end of the verses. I think there's just too much to say. Um, But hopefully we'll lay enough groundwork for the principles to be clear. So in our reading, we have principles set out for three pairs of relationships. We have husbands and wives, we have parents and children, and we have household masters and servants, as they would have been in Paul's day. So these are the people who lived at home, and Paul was writing this letter. This is who lived at home. This is the household unit, the economic unit. And this letter is written to Christian households. And we know that because he's frequently mentioning the Lord as the basis for everything they're to do. I'm going to touch briefly at the end on how we might think through a situation where there's a mixed believing, unbelieving household. And we'll come back to that at the end. But verse 18 to 19, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
let's just be honest, the word submit goes down like a lead balloon uh, to modern ears, doesn't it? I'm going to argue, hopefully, though, from the scriptures, that this proposed relationship between husbands and wives is indeed good, and it is beautiful. But that said, I want to start by making three brief negative comments about that word submit to clear away some of the debris of modern misunderstanding and objection to hopefully make way for us to hear the positives. Firstly, the instruction towards wives to submit in verse 18, it's a different word to the word obey given to children and to bond servants in verse 20 and 22 respectively. Um, the word obey, it carries that strong authoritative sense of do as you're told. As you might expect of a child or a servant, they have that role. Whereas the submit verb, it carries that sense of be willing to submit yourself. And related to that, secondly, notice there is no counterpart command on the part of the husband to force submission. This is not forced subjection. It does not justify abuse. This is an instruction to Christian wives. Christian husbands, your instruction is to unconditionally love your wife. You are not to force anything. Uh, thirdly, uh, notice that submission is to be in the Lord. That is key. We might say something like this, submission in a manner that is fitting for those who belong to the Lord which is a significant limitation on the instruction. The wife is not to submit blindly to anything. This is not a call to be a doormat. Let's just be really clear on that. This is a call to submit in the context of being a faithful disciple of Jesus, submitting to things that are pleasing to Jesus. It's a call to a wife to know her scriptures well, to be well-versed in the teachings of the Lord, to be able to discern what is indeed pleasing to him. And that makes this teaching truly empowering as an instruction when it's understood well, because it's a call for wives to strive for Christian maturity. How else will you know what is fitting in the Lord? How else will you know what is fitting for those who know the Lord if you don't know his word? So wives, read the Bible. Pray about it. Live it out. Don't submit blindly to anything. Now, it is easy with a verse like this to preach a sermon, or indeed it seems right, a commentary that spends its entire time telling you what these verses don't mean rather than stating what they do. Um, I had a similar experience this recently. My father-in-law took me to a popular hardware store locally known to some of us so we could get 10% off with a special card that he has. But have you ever heard a more caveated headline offer? 10% off if you're over 60 and you've applied for a loyalty card on a Wednesday and you're picking up in store and you're buying a gardening product. I'm just surprised they didn't add, and you're wearing blue. As it happens, my father-in-law was over 60 with a loyalty card on a Wednesday and we were getting a garden fence, which just about qualified for this offer but man, did the stars really have to align for us to get that 10% off in the bag. Um, but hopefully you see my point. If you caveat something too much, it's not really there at all. Um, and likewise with this passage, I want us to feel the impact of the verses and the instructions before we start looking for the exceptions. Um, 
I think I would have failed mightily if we went away tonight having caveated these difficult verses out of existence. It's worth saying that when Paul gave these instructions to Christian households, they gave incredible value and dignity to wives and to children and to servants in an otherwise male-dominated household culture where role and authority had culturally determined a person's value and their dignity. Let me ask you this. If someone is in a position of authority over somebody else, are those two people still of equal value? Is a wife as valuable as a husband, a child as valuable as a parent, a servant or a worker as valuable as a master or a boss? Jesus says, yes. He's the Lord of all. Remember where we started, he's the Lord of all. It's Jesus who bestows value and dignity in all of us. We're all made in the Lord's image. And it's verse 24 that reminds us that it's from Jesus from whom we receive our inheritance. Our roles don't define our value, it's Jesus. We might ask whether we think Jesus himself is any less than God fully divine. What do we make of him submitting to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus in the garden, he willingly submits to his father while maintaining all the dignity of God, all the status of God. It is a good and a beautiful submission that Jesus models to us. If Jesus himself submits, then why would submission in any faithful Christian relationship do you know any less value or dignity in either party? I think it's actually wider society, it's wider society that's convinced us that role defines value. And I think we see that in the career ladder with those grades, and the increasingly lucrative pay package as you go up to show your value to the firms. We see it in celebrity culture, social media influences who we put up on a pedestal, people who are valued more highly because of their roles. Please don't follow society on this. Submission is not devaluing, it's not degrading, and it wasn't for Jesus. When Paul asks wives to submit to their husbands, we're talking about willing submission to a loving leadership, the loving leadership of a Christian husband when he leads you in the things that are pleasing to the Lord. Husbands are in turn to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Or we could phrase that, not to become bitter with them. Christian husbands, notice here, there is no condition. There's no excuse for a lack of love or for harshness or for bitterness towards your wife. You're to love your wife. You are to love your wife the way Jesus loved your wife. And how did Jesus love your wife? He shed his blood for her. And for you? Husbands, do you treat your wife with the dignity 
and the respect of a redeemed daughter of God. Do you seek to lead her under the guidance of Jesus her Savior? That's what Jesus is calling you to do. The big question people often ask at this point is, well, what does that look like in practice? What does this husband-wife dynamic actually look like in practice? And we have to be honest. The text doesn't prescribe, it doesn't tell us exactly what that looks like. And I assume that's because this principle will be played out in slightly different ways, in different households with different characters, different scenarios. But it's easy enough, I think, to get a sense of what it might look like even if we can't quite pin down all the details. Um, Here are some of the more obvious ideas that come to my mind. Um, Wives, wouldn't it be wonderful if your Christian husband showed spiritual leadership in the home? Wouldn't it be great if your husband were to initiate getting the Bible open with you and with the kids if you have them and then leading you through it? I'm not asking you to evaluate your husband's ability to do that. I'm asking whether you desire for him to show that kind of spiritual leadership. And are there ways in which you could encourage him to lead you and give him space to do that? Um, There might be times where you instinctively want to take the reins. But rather than taking over, can you instead help your husband to lead you. Likewise, husbands, um, take seriously the responsibility Jesus entrusts you with, the responsibility of the spiritual maturity of your wife and of your children. Don't outsource that to someone else. Sometimes it's tempting to think that that's the church's job when it's not primarily, it's yours. It starts at home. Um, Love your family well by leading them in the ways of Jesus, because following Jesus is the most important thing in their lives. Um, And it goes without saying that to lead your family well, you need to be following Jesus seriously yourself. So that's one practical application from this passage, whatever else we want to do with it. Husbands, show spiritual leadership at home, Teach your family the word of God and do that when it's costly because Jesus loved you when it was incredibly costly for him. And wives, um, help your husband to step up and do that. Give him space to show spiritual leadership. Ask him to open the Bible with you and encourage him to lead you. That would be a good God-given pattern. I wonder at this point how you're feeling about that. I don't want to presume how you'd respond to what um, I've just said. Um, But I do want to say this. Um, You should want this to be true. You should want this to be true because it it is good. It is good. Um, Verse 18 and 19, they push really hard against any theology that wants to minimize the good God-given difference between men and women between husbands and wives. And the Bible is really, really clear that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And this passage makes it really clear that husbands and wives are not exactly the same. And therefore, they're not interchangeable. 
and you don't want them to be interchangeable. Consider the normalization in our society of same-sex unions, of transgender ideologies in Western culture, and in some parts of the Church of England. It is a teaching that is fundamentally eroding the God-given goodness of maleness and femaleness, falsely teaching us that the roles of husbands and wives, of men and women, are completely interchangeable, which they're not. That view is not compatible with the Bible's teaching. In the beginning, male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1, right at the beginning. Why male and female? Because they complement each other. They're both necessary. They both have an essential role. They both have a dignity about them. They're not interchangeable. We need the roles of men and women, of wives and husbands. They're both good roles. It's worth saying as an aside, if you're hearing me say this and you're struggling in any way with same-sex attraction or something like gender dysphoria, um, we're really glad that you're here. We're really glad that you're listening. And we genuinely love to talk to you about that and help you with those things. Please do come and talk to me um, about that if you'd like to. I'm very happy to talk to you about that. Um, but before we draw to a close, I want to address a couple of um, points, further points of application on verses 18 and 19. Um, that is, um, when either husband or wife is not a believing Christian, um, these words are written to Christian households, assuming both um, husband and wife are believers. So what do you do when one of those parties doesn't love and follow the Lord Jesus? Uh, wives of unbelieving husbands. Honor your husband as one who is made in the image of God, but do not submit to ungodliness. The instruction here, as we've seen, is to submit as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Look at verse 18 again. As is fitting in the Lord. So never do anything that impinges on your Christian morality or goes against the teaching of Christ in his word. In addition, if you experience any kind of abuse, be that physical or verbal, get out of there. This passage does not bind you to submit to ungodliness. That is not how it functions. It should not be used for that purpose. Husbands of unbelieving wives. And if your wife won't submit to Jesus and you're leading of her spiritually in Jesus, you cannot force her to do so. Your command here is to love her nevertheless. And that's going to be really painful at times. Let's just be honest about that. It's going to require love and grace and forgiveness. And it will only be possible by remembering that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. But once again, there is no room for abuse on either side, in either direction, and neither command to husband nor wife cause either party to tolerate that. There's no room for bullying, 
or the use of force, or manipulation, or resentment, or harsh words. These things have no place in a marriage. You're each children of God, and you are called to love each other and fulfill your different God-given roles. If you're listening to this as a single person, uh, this is still a passage worth thinking through because it highlights the value and dignity we all have from the Lord of all. Um, in a culture that's become um, obsessed to uh, idolize sex and relationships, um, this passage reminds each person, whether you are single or whether you are married, of your individual God-given dignity. We are each chosen ones of God doing all things for his glory. And if you're a single person here and you're thinking, well, you might get married in the future maybe one day, I hope you're thinking about the type of person, I hope you're praying about the type of person that that might be. What sort of person does this text lead you to or warn you off? Um, if you're a female, are you looking for a Christian male who is godly and willing to show spiritual leadership. If you're a male, are you yourself following Jesus faithfully? Um, are you willing to step up and lead another? Um, are you looking for a Christian wife who loves Jesus and wants to be led in his teaching? These are fundamental questions to ask as we think about the institution of marriage. On that note, I fear I must stop there. Um, I'm sorry that um, I haven't spoken about um, parents um, and children um, and masters and servants, um, but I hope those principles we started with, that Jesus is the Lord of all, and that is from Jesus that we gain our fundamental dignity and our value. I hope those principles give us some fuel for thinking through how we might apply the text in our own individual circumstances, those different relationships that Paul is talking about. Jesus is Lord of all. He's the one who gives us our dignity and value, not our roles. Let me pray for us as we close our time together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of all. Thank you that our value and our dignity come from you, not from the roles we fulfill in life. As we reflect on your Lordship, help us to see the tangible outworking of your Lordship in our life, in our words, and in our deeds. Help us to put into practice your Lordship. Even of the simple things, Lord, like the breakfast table tomorrow morning, help us to think about how your Lordship impacts how we relate to those in our households, how we relate to those at work, how we relate to those at school. Jesus, we need your help to follow you rather than following culture. Help us to know your love when others would shun us for following you faithfully. 
Help us to be brave. Help us to be faithful. Thank you, Lord, that your words are good and that your instructions for our lives are good and they are pleasing to you. Help us to take your truths into our lives. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.